After five and a half years as president of the Utah Foundation, Peter Reichart is leaving to take a new position out of state. During his tenure, the Utah Foundation issued 50 major reports, along with dozens of briefs and other educational products. I sat down with Peter to discuss a few of the things he learned from the massive body of research we produced. You'll hear that conversation in this edition of Utah Thrives, the Utah Foundation podcast. I'm Sean Tiger. So Peter, 50 reports over the past five or so years. I don't know how much of that information you still have stored in your head, but I'd like to go through these reports and kind of see, tease out what you think are the most important takeaways and kind of see how we affected the state over the past five years in putting together this massive body of research. Sounds good. So we'll start with uh, one of the things we really focused on at the beginning was healthcare, And it's something that really hadn't been on our agenda much before you stepped in as president of the Utah Foundation. Mm -hmm. So we started with a report looking at what's driving medical service costs. Uh, we also looked at what's driving health insurance costs and Medicaid spending in Utah. Can you talk about what you see as the most important takeaways from those reports? Well, with these reports, as with any of the reports, there are a lot of takeaways. But I think a couple of things that really stand out to me is, number one, pharmaceuticals and technology is driving <clears throat> so much of the cost. And um, we had a actually a breakfast briefing. We brought in uh, Dan Lillenquist with Civica RX, which is a, a generic pharmaceutical company that was really started here in Utah. That conversation, in addition to the work we did, really drove home the point that we're really, in a lot of ways, being held hostage by the pharmaceutical industry when it comes to health care costs. And it's because, in part, they have so much influence in Washington. But another thing that really um, is striking to me is we talk about healthcare all the time as a market, the healthcare market. We use that phrase frequently. And there's just not a lot of transparency. It's hard to, it's not like you can comparison shop. People don't really have the information to do that. I could have a procedure done at Hospital A, and it's the same exact procedure, but it costs maybe even twice as much versus Hospital B. But if I don't have that information, then how can I really respond as an actor in the market? So it's not really a true market. If you can't make transparent decisions, it's not a true market. It's a little bit like, Sean, if I told you, hey, uh, I'm going to sell you a house, but I'm not going to tell you how much it costs until you move in. Right, right. For the average person, just a lot of the regular terminology used in the medical field, used in uh, even insurance ter terminology, is very difficult for people to understand. So you can't, if you can't understand what it is you're buying or what, what benefits you're receiving from the product, how can you make an informed market decision? Yeah, you know, and Peter, so much of the work that we do focuses on transparency. So we, we, we actually, in, in 2018, released a couple of reports looking at funding and spending for education. And mm -hmm. we, we 
kind of did a, a, a general look, but then we also focused a little bit more narrowly on students at risk of academic failure, poor academic outcomes. So, mm -hmm. so what were the takeaways from those reports? Well, one of the things that really stands out to me was the fact that when we looked at our English language learners, the amount of additional money that was being directed towards those learners was really low, even even relative to the to the relatively low per pupil funding that we have in Utah. Now, let me just say that one of the incredible things that we discovered, I think, was that money really isn't everything. We, in our education work, created a, a set of peer states to compare Utah to. And what we found was that Utah was performing maybe just a little bit below or, or at the same level as these peer states, but the peer states were spending far more money per pupil, in one or two cases, maybe double per pupil, what Utah was, was spending. So money isn't everything. And I think that's a really interesting finding. On the other hand, if investment in effective programs, if that's the only thing that's holding back these English language learners, boy, uh, what a great investment that would be if we could just um, spend more and get these kids to really, um, particularly, you know, you're coming in, you're children of immigrants, you know, you, there's that uh, desire um, for that next generation to achieve the American dream. Let's not have English language skills be the impediment to that. Yeah, you know, that, that reminds me of a former Governor Herbert would say something along the lines of, you know, money isn't everything, but it's some of the thing when it comes to education. And, and yeah, I, th I think that's a great point. Those are great takeaways, Peter. You know, when you talk about education funding, you that's, that's of course, very tightly linked to taxation. And we released a series of reports on kind of the three-legged stool of taxation in the state. So you're looking mm -hmm. at property taxes, at income taxes, and sales taxes. What were the takeaways from those reports in your in your eyes? Well, again, here's an area where just, gosh, there were so many great takeaways. But <clears throat> if I could kind of just focus in, I think one of the things that was interesting to look at was on the property tax side. Um, you know, we have a process that a lot of our local taxing bodies uh, find very cumbersome called truth and taxation. The idea was, well, we're not able to keep up with costs because of this cumbersome truth and taxation process. Now, the other side of it is, well, we want to keep tax rates reasonable to the actual um, needs of municipalities. And so if they're going to bump up the taxes, they need to go back to the public and let them know what's going on. And um, it was just interesting to see that really in a lot of cases, taxing bodies were actually ahead, ahead of the curve in terms of, of inflation and in relationship to taxation. And, um, and so really the, the, that that process kind of seemed to be working as advertised. It was increasing transparency around taxation and yet for the most part allowing the local taxing bodies to keep up with taxation. And the, this kind of the conversation around it for several years before that had been, well, this truth and taxation thing doesn't work. It's too cumbersome, but actually it, it, it pretty much works. Yeah. Great. So, you, you know, speaking of kind of keeping an eye on how funding is spent and where the funding is coming from, we released a couple of reports looking at economic development incentives. Mm -hmm. and what, what can you tell us about uh, the takeaways from those? 
Well, that was a really interesting one. And, and again, there are a lot of areas that you could get into. Really, we're looking at the tax increment financing mechanism, which is a mechanism where um, you take the anticipated new tax revenue from a development and you use it, you give it back to the developer or you use it to finance or support the development in some way. You use that new increment to help pay for the development because somehow that development is desirable or um, maybe you've got some kind of impediment that you're trying to 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 um, work around or you just don't have money laying around for infrastructure improvements that you need to make. So you use that incremental new revenue to finance that that infrastructure or to help finance the development. And of course, you know, in a lot of cases, what this means is that uh, future tax revenues are being um, delivered into the hands, effectively, of the developer, a private party. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> you know, so th- it's something that really nationally has been a- an area of increasing focus, particularly as this tax increment financing mechanism has sort of mutated over time. It's not quite what it used to be. It's m- much more um, free-flowing. There are even examples of where even you know the baseline level of taxation is set below what it would have been pre-development so you're actually giving away part of the existing increment and ca- capturing the increment can be tough particularly with sales tax because you've got different competitors generating sales tax in- out there and it's hard to say well this is a pure increment when maybe some of those sales were taken away f- from another um another private entity out there at any rate, um, this really became one about transparency as well, because the the um, Governmental Accounting Standards Board um, created a, a, a new set of standards <clears throat> focused on ensuring that local governments properly reported the value of the tax revenue that they were effectively forfeiting in order to advance their tax increment fines, financing projects. And um, what we found was that uh, really a lot of our our local governments in Utah were not properly reporting that, and um, we sort of had to go through this process where we you know we went to some of these local finance officers and said we, this is what we're seeing, and they kind of pushed back and said you've got it all wrong, you're misinterpreting it, you got it wrong. Um, we ultimately ended up um, going back and forth with the state auditor. We ended up going back with the governmental. Governmental Accounting Standing Standards Board, otherwise known as GASB, directly. GASB said, your interpretation is exactly right. You're doing, they put it this way, you're doing the Lord's work. Uh, as a result, the state auditor issued guidance um, requiring greater transparency. And so now taxpayers have uh, a greater awareness of what monies are essentially being um, given up in the form of these tax increments. And really, you know, it's to the benefit, I think, of the economic development people in the sense that if there's more transparency around um, these incentives, then you're more likely to build public trust around an incentive program. And if you have an incentive program where you you don't want to have tr- transparency, well, then maybe you're not doing it right. You know, you should be able to make the case to the taxpayer that your program makes sense. Yep, you know, it, it was fun to be able to uh, go to some of those uh, municipalities and jurisdictions and, and, and 
have them suggest that, well, maybe the person you're talking to at GASB doesn't really know what they're talking about. You, you brought up the GASB organization. And we're like, well, we, we've been speaking with the person that wrote the rule. Like <laughs> she, she literally wrote the book on this and she's mm -hmm. saying we're right. And, and, and you need to do something about this. So that, that, that's, that's kind of a fun thing uh, in the life of a policy researcher, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, so Peter, how about water? We're going to be talking a lot about water in 2023 at the Utah foundation. Uh, but we kind of started into this uh, back in 2019. What, what did we uh, find uh, during that series of reports? Well, we found a lot. Uh, one of the things we found is that there are literally hundreds of different water providers in Utah. They have overlapping jurisdictions. They pay for water different ways. You might be um, living in a certain part of the West Valley and pay either taxes or user fees to three different water providers. Um, and so it's a very unusual um, patchwork that if you just, you know, if you were starting from scratch right now, you wouldn't envision it being that way. Now, we're not saying it's all bad. There are no doubt some benefits to the way it has evolved over time. Um, but, you know, we looked at this in terms of tax versus fee approach that we have in place. Does it make sense from a fairness standpoint? Is it, is it work um, from like a cost of debt standpoint? Transparency issues come up as well. But I think, uh, you know, one of the key points is if you look at it from a conservation standpoint, um, you, of course, you could always change your fee structures in various ways. But the more you rely on fees, the more leverage you have to, um, I, I guess, encourage people to conserve water through the fee structure. And so I think that's the thing that really is striking about it. It's possible to live in various places in, in Utah in a very, very low water bills. And you think about what oh, it's the second driest state or whatever, depending on how you measure dryness. We're one of the driest states. Let's just put it that way. And, and you know, so you look at it from that standpoint and think, well, you know, we really need to be careful here. And we're subsidizing water usage through property taxes in a lot of cases. And I'm not saying that's all bad. There are some advantages to the approach. But I, I think a careful assessment of this looking forward, particularly in light of the growing concerns around water conservation. I think that's in order. Yeah, so we we got into water uh, back in, in uh, 2019. We also took our first real big step in a long time into facing the growth challenges that I think Utah has been experiencing and, will, mm -hmm. and expects to continue experiencing. We did that, that first report we focused on that really was building a better beehive, land use, decision-making, fiscal sustainability, and quality in life in Utah. What did we find there? Well, I think, you know, one of the big takeaways from all of these better beehive type reports is that growth is a challenge, yes. Growth can negatively affect quality of life, yes. These are just facts of life, but it's also an opportunity in many respects to improve quality of life. So the, I guess the turn of phrase that we would frequently use was, how do we build quality of life into our growth? How do we build community into our growth? So we have this rapid growth going on. So, you know, when you have a lot of growth, you have a lot of opportunities to do things right. A lot of opportunities to do things wrong as well. But the opportunity there is to do things right, to do things in a way where you're building in that quality of life. You're building in that 
that that um, community. And so um, I think, you know, a, a big part of that is obviously going to be streetscapes that people want, that are attractive, that people want to be in as pedestrians. And we can all bring to mind immediately a streetscape that we know of um, that is not a place where you want to be as a pedestrian and you're not even particularly finding it attractive as a driver, you know. In a lot of the quality of life work that we did, it became clear that people are very, very satisfied with the outdoor offerings. Maybe the only downside is that there are more and more people cluttering them up, right? Um, but people love the outdoors. They love the natural environment. They're less excited about the built environment in Utah. And so it's really, there's an opportunity um, through growth to improve that built environment. And, and I really do think that given the high functionality of Utah uh, relative to other states or other countries for that matter, I really do think that looking at this from just a very ambitious perspective, how can Utah become not just a model within the West or within the United States, but how can Utah really become a model globally you how do you grow in a way that brings along with it a sense of community and quality of life so you know it's it's essentially it's a, it's a great laboratory that growth offers to uh, the state and and more uh, to the point the local communities so you know peter one of the things we like to think maybe at the utah foundation is that we really have a pulse on, on what matters uh, in terms of the research that we're, we're putting together. And part of that is based upon, you know, we survey Utahns to figure out what is on people's minds. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, just before the uh, big shutdown uh, for the pandemic in, in March of 2020, we had started working on a, a report looking at, at telework, at remote work. And, and actually released the first of the two reports uh, on that in, in, in April of 2020 and then and followed that up with one focusing on on air quality concerns around telework. Uh, what, what were the takeaways, would you say, from those reports? With regard to telework, look, let's imagine that we can, a few years from now, measure that there was a 10 or 15 percent permanent shift to telework. That may be underestimating it. You know, we'll have to see. Um, where things really shake out, because I don't think we're at the end of this uh, process of of figuring out what work looks like yet. And, you know, there's, of course, there's the in-between, there's the hybrid approach. But let's say that that's the case. Let's say it ends up at 10 or 15%. Imagine if 10 or 15% of the population was suddenly taking mass transit. I mean, that would be considered... I mean, an extra 10 or 15%. That would be considered revolutionary. That would be, a, you know, just a, considered a massive change. And with massive impacts on traffic and on land use and things like that. Well, this telework thing is, is similar. I mean, it, it, there are really significant implications for land use, significant implications for transportation here. In 2021... We started the social capital series, and Peter, you did a lot of work on those. Uh, that that whole massive series of reports, mm -hmm. right there. What what would you say is is maybe a, a big uh, takeaway from that? Well, social capital—it's this hidden, very important thing 
just there in the shadows of so much of what happens in the public policy arena and in, and socially. When you think about the consequences of the breakdown of social capital, um, where people don't have relationships that can sustain them through rough patches and they end up homeless, where people don't have the structure to um, to build self at home, to build self discipline and a sense of purpose, and we have a we have crime and a bigger jail population, um, and um, you know other social consequences. So there's a cost to having low social capital, and there's a benefit to having high social capital. Now, as it turns out, and we were surprised. We got to the end of this. We we knew that Utah was going to do well. We we did seven reports on seven different subject areas. We went through 30 different metrics and analyzed all of them, compared Utah to other states. And we knew that Utah was doing well, but when when we tallied it all up, we realized that Utah was far, far ahead of the nation at large. It was a really striking distance between Utah's level of social capital and the national picture. Utah has a much lighter burden to carry than other states because it has strong social um, cohesion, it has a strong family life, it has strong community life, and uh, particularly the family life is going to be important. You know, one of the things that we point out in there is that you can't really have an honest conversation about anything in public policy if you ignore the impacts of family structure. And, you know, it's something that we sort of already knew about. We dealt with it in our, in our education work, you'll recall, Sean. Um, but, you know, family structure is, is hugely important, and it's because, really, it's it's the building block of a civilization. And so if you have strong family life, then you have strong building blocks. It's as simple as that. You know, speaking about speaking about building, <laughs> so I could take it to another a series of reports uh, that that straddled uh, 2021 to 2022. That's our uh, so-called missing middle housing. This is these kind of duplexes and fourplexes, and that and that sort of housing that that isn't really being seen maybe as much in a lot of areas as it was, you know, uh, 80 years ago. Uh, what's is there like one takeaway from that series of reports that that uh, you find uh, pretty interesting? You're not going to get anywhere by just complaining about uh, so-called not in my backyard NIMBY. And um, and thinking that somehow um, the the answer to everything is to build um, high rise high density everywhere and just people are just going to have to live with it. That's not realistic. We live in a political environment. Those people that you you're calling nimbys may actually just be people who care about their neighborhoods because they live there and their home is the number one investment in their life. You throwing around the term NIMBY, it's it's an easy way out of dealing with the reality. And part of the reality, too, is that their elected officials um, require their support to get reelected. And that means that they have to be responsive to their concerns. And so I think the big, big takeaway for me is there's a way, there's a middle way where you can produce additional housing in a manner that frankly, is not very noticeable, whether it's the smaller house on the smaller lot, whether you've relaxed the parking restrictions. Actually, that might actually make your neighborhood more attractive if you have don't have garage uh, fronts and, and curb cuts everywhere. 
in the reports, we give these beautiful examples of multifamily homes that look like single family homes where you'd never know. It's like, oh, that's a nice looking larger sized house. That must be a, a well-off person that lives there. You've actually got five apartment apartments inside of it. And so there's a way of doing this middle ground, this middle ground between the single family home on the large lot and the five-story multifamily, you know, 50-unit building. There's something in the middle. And um, and it's it's something that we know from our survey work as part of that series is going to be more acceptable to neighbors. You know, the, the challenge is how do you get um, the decision makers and the uh, development community, frankly, to invade, um, embrace some of these options? I think we could quite literally talk for for uh, 12 hours about the work that we've done over the past five years. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, we, we've got reports looking at alternative fuel vehicles and road uses charges. We've got reports looking at surveys of, of, of Utahns looking at quality of life and about their priorities. We've looked at teacher pay and police pay. Give us a couple other, uh, maybe a couple final thoughts about a couple yeah. of reports that, that uh, have really kind of kept with you over the past five years. Well, let's talk about the pay issue real quick. We haven't cracked the nut as a civilization on how to get the most out of our public employees. And by getting the most, I mean having employees that are that are happy and want to uh, give their all every day because they're surrounded by people that um, come to work um, with a sense of nobility. We also haven't figured out, particularly in a difficult um, economy where you know there's just a, a shortage of workers, how to attract a new generation of people to public service, whether it's teachers or police. Now, a big part of this, and this is a tough thing, is going to have to be a reconsideration of the way we think about compensation. Now, when you bring this up, the teachers union will flip. They don't want anything to change. But the reality of the situation is we don't have infinite resources. People coming out of college aren't interested in or most of them anyway, aren't interested in pension benefits that they don't even understand um, and that don't exist in the private sector and that they are not going to enjoy until 40 years from now. When you could have been taking some of the money as just as an option, you could offer people the option, hey, you can have more money up front maybe and we're going to give you a, um, a different compensation mix where there's a little less going into retirement versus, well, we can't change anything because we're afraid. You know, that that's not, uh, we're not going to get anywhere in, until we address the compensation mix because resources are not infinite. That's the pay issue. And I think there are similar discussions that need to be um, had around police, although, you know, it's kind of a different set of um, circumstances to some extent. One of the things that we talk about, you know, in the office is the pitfalls to avoid in terms of doing public policy work. And I think those pitfalls are important for people in the press, the policymakers, and uh, and the public to, to keep in mind as well. Imitation is a nice form of flatter, flattery, um, but we don't have to just copy off of other people and assume that 
um, whatever they're doing is the best thing. And you need to look at the particulars of your own situation and uh, not kind of give into that lazy way of thinking that other people do it this way, so it must be good. And I think that one of the things too uh, to guard against is the is novelty, the idea that some place is doing something new and it looks good. Everything looks good in the first year. Let's say, um, Sean, you go and build a house, and when it's brand new, everything looks great. And then mm-hmm. you say, "Hey, everybody, come see this house. This is the best way to do a house." Well, you're gonna—it's gonna look really good because it's brand new. It's this new idea of of doing a house. Well, let's see what the house looks like in 20 years, because maybe there are a lot of things that you did wrong that don't show up right away. So I think just kind of avoiding that idea of just that sort of compulsive imitation of what other places are doing um, when it isn't necessarily going to get you where you need to go. You need to look at the particulars of your own situation and move from there. And by the way, Sean, feel free to disagree with me on that. I might no, I, I, I absolutely. I mean, it, it's a, it's, it's not only that that you've got something new and not only that you need to tailor it to the area, but there, I mean, there's, there are all sorts of, mm-hmm. but I think with any of these issues, the, the, the more you delve into them and start kind of pulling on the threads, you see that there are, you know, there are shortcomings to all of the issues. Yeah. And I think that there's never going to be like, this is the thing that we're going to, once we figure this out, we're done. Yeah. I don't think I don't think you're ever done. I think you just kind of keep on working and you try to get the information out there uh, that that uh, is is important at the time and and that that you know we we uh, put this stuff together to the best of our abilities and hopefully you know some people listen to it and and make some decisions based upon it and and you know we we live in a better place yeah. uh, as a, as a result. Yeah, and there's no there's no perfect reform or no perfect structure that you're going to come up with because it all depends on people. Yeah. And now there are, are better ways of doing things and things that are more likely to fail and, and you know, are more likely to succeed. But at the end of the day, uh, it all depends on the people um, doing the work. And, um, and so I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as well. And as policy researchers, you know, I, I, I think that we've been doing this kind of work at the Utah Foundation for 75 years. I can mm-hmm. see uh, people doing this kind of work in 75 years from now, and maybe it's a whole set of different issues, but we may be revisiting some things that we thought we'd figured out in 2022 or 2023. Uh, but, but that maybe, you know, like that house, uh, that didn't hold up for 20 years. Maybe it's, uh, you've got to kind of keep reevaluating and and working to make things better. Other thing too, is occasionally, um, I've heard people say, well, you all are the experts. It's, I don't think it's healthy, you know, I guess if we were um, uh, some kind of, I don't know, China or some kind of totalitarian state, you know, you're, you're relying on the experts. I think in, in a country like ours, you really need to um, just keep an open mind and uh, the experts can be wrong. The experts are often wrong. And so I didn't right. really like being called an expert. Uh, to, to me, it's more somebody who's learning and, and wants to wants to figure things out that I, I haven't arrived at the final answer on things right, right you know right. it's um there are things that that you discover um but the the idea that you're the master and people can just 
empower you to to take care of everything or just follow your program and everything will be okay. We got we should be careful about that because things are not that simple. Well, Peter, it's been a pleasure working with you. This is the last Peter Reichart uh, podcast at the Utah Foundation, and uh, we'll we'll certainly miss you. Well, miss you too, and it's been a lot of fun today, as always. Absolutely, thanks, Peter. Thank you. This has been Utah Thrives, the Utah Foundation podcast. Follow our work at utahfoundation.org.